City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Oh, no, we're not. Okay, we're only an hour. And it's City Limits. It's, uh, it's the fourth Wednesday of the month. I'm going to do something I shouldn't do on here, but I'm going to move this mic, which might make a noise. There we are. And uh, I'm Kevin Healy and Kim... Uh, and, uh, what am I saying? Meg Kimber. Meg Kimber, is, <laughs> Meg Kimber is over there uh, pressing buttons for us, and we've, it's been a mad rush to get to this seat this morning. But anyway, it was the here. tea, wasn't it? it was, was that what it was? was it, well, yeah, and I got chatting away about a few things out there, <laughs> oh, Karen, etc. So, yeah. So Bring them in next time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> they can join the interviews. <laughs> and uh, we have only got one interview this morning, but it's going to be for most of the program from about 9.20, because we're going to be talking to one of our... As we call them, regular irregulars or irregular regulars, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, John Passant, the um, former Assistant Commissioner of Taxation, who talks to us regularly about economic and tax type issues. He's currently lecturing in tax, and that's why we haven't had him on all year because we do get good, re- literally, do we do get good responses to the days we have John on. Yeah, um, uh, I, you've been sort of saying that he might come on for months now. Yeah, well, we, his problem's been that he um, he's lecturing. Um, at one of the unis in Sydney, but he lives lives there on the coast, and he's been on the train at this time of day. And mm-hmm. as I've said before, I'm too lazy to come in and do a pre-record. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, well, maybe I'll, I won't won't include you in that, Meg. But, uh, and um, and so we we had to wait till the end of the academic year to get him on. I see, and that, which has now happened, of course. And yeah. um, and so John is uh, John's coming on this morning to talk about a number of issues. Uh, so we'll off we'll go, um, and I'm going to again take a second out to do two things. One is to uh, reach in here and get my reading glasses out so I can read stuff that's in front of me. And secondly, I'll pour some tea. Do you want a cup of tea? Yes, that would be okay, lovely. Thank we'll you. We'll get you one. So we'll pour some tea at the same time. Uh, on this, just um, as one of those minor, those items that are fascinating. Um, <laughs> An item this week that the Japan Railway people apologised for a train. Uh, now, we don't get a lot of apologies here for trains being... Um, well, this would never happen here, of course. They apologised because the train was actually early. <laughs> uh, and how, how, how much early do you think it might have been, Mick? Oh, Take a little step. Three and a half minutes? Three and a half minutes. You get not that far away. Mm. You're a bit far away. Um. It was twenty seconds early, <laughs> <laughs> and they apologised. Oh. It was scheduled to. Uh, it was scheduled to leave Manami Nagariyama Station, um, north of thirty-two k north of Tokyo, at nine forty-four forty, but it left at nine forty-four twenty. <gasps> no one missed it. No one complained, but the company apologised anyway because, and they've. Um, 
the, the staff have uh, been assured of given additional training <laughs> to ensure it doesn't happen again. Now, now here, the possibility of a train running early as well, <laughs> not on. <laughs> and secondly, they've stopped apologising. The previous company that ran ran the trains, they they used to say, you know, we apologise for any inconvenience, which was about four thousand times a day. Right, people got sick of hearing. Now they just say, now they just say it's not going to turn up. Bad luck, yeah. and that's it. <laughs> we apologise for apologising so much. That's Right, that's right. We're going to stop. Now, here's one I found uh, interesting. Donald, uh, I'm going to have a sip of tea. Hang on, tick. Mm. There we are. Um, Donald Trump, he's the American president. Um, oh, yeah. Tell me yeah. more about him. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> we don't hear much about him, do <laughs> no, we? No, we don't. Well, yeah. Other than from himself. And this, <laughs> that's what this is about. Uh, there was some criticism that he didn't get much, didn't achieve much in his trip to Asia, etc. Right. Now, Don, uh, he delivered a 24-minute statement um, and, uh, and, uh, justifying what a great job he'd done, mm. speaking from a teleprompter, so, you know, what they call an idiot sheet, so, which mm-hmm. in his case is absolutely appropriate. <laughs> and um, he, he said, he gave it, they said it gave it an almost a nearly day-by-day travelogue style <laughs> um, and talked about other trips he'd made. He said the U.S., and this is where his modesty always comes in, of course. We know this very man modest, is... Very modest, very humble. Right. Oh, yep. He is the most... He is the, the most modest ever, the most modest ever, ever, <laughs> ever modest, ever. Uh, greatest ever modest. Anyway, he, he said the US had never been more respected across the globe and that Americans were again optimistic about the future, confident in our values and proud of our history and role in the world. My message has resonated, he said. Oh. Isn't that modesty run riot? Yeah. <sighs> There's a funny thing about um, the United States of America. They're very rhetorical. And they love their. They really believe their own rhetoric. It's almost as if by saying something, it comes true. So they just. They, it's really quite sweet. <laughs> so we can say this is going to be a great program. Absolutely, that would be the American way. Yeah, just tell people this is a great program. The Bricky, the Bricky show this morning, by the way, at the end of the Bricky show, this is, which is when I hear the end of it, I've got yeah. to get out the door on the bike and over here. Yeah. Uh, but I thought it was quite a modest ending when the bloke said we've had a great program today. <laughs> That's the way. He's got the dog. Donald Trump trick. <laughs> I'm sure it was a great program. Oh, it was. It was I was on my way here. Yeah, I missed. I missed most of it. Uh, and this week, the Business Council of Australia, which we'll raise later with um, John Passon, because they uh, they had their annual dinner, but the yeah. same day they put out a statement, they surveyed their own members to say they desperately a tax cut was great for all of us. So mm. we'll get onto that with John later. Mm-hmm. But there was there were a couple of pages, a spread of pictures of the important business people and the uh, people who are their puppets uh, at the night. And um, there's one of, um, and this is going to be one of my very bad jokes, by the way. It's okay. Building up to a very bad joke. All right, um, I'll, pre- I'll prepare myself. There's one, it says, uh, there's a picture, it says, former New Zealand PM Bill English with his wife Mary and federal treasurer Scott Morrison. And then it's got a photo and it says, Morrison enters through the metal detectors, and it shows him coming through a metal detector. And I thought... Um, I'm glad they're called metal detectors because with that sort of people, those sort of people, if they were called metal detectors, no one would get through, would they? <laughs> <laughs> Told you it was a very bad joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> I'd like to see the photo. Can oh, there, yeah, sure, sure. There you are. There's Pop the... it up on the yeah, website There was later. another page there of it, the other side, but I didn't tear it out. But the, the, when, uh, there were two pages of photos. But They all um, look hopeful and... Curious about the world. They do, don't yeah. they? Yeah. 
There's Malcolm Turnbull there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was someone else, some other ex-Prime Minister as well. So mm. Turnbull might have been worried in the company. Every other Prime Minister there was an ex. Yeah. Do you think um, they've put Parliament on hold this week to have a leadership spill or is that just me? Well, they're trying to work out what to do. Maybe to avoid one or yeah. uh, or certainly avoid getting knocked off in Parliament mm. and say, well, mainly to save the banks, I think, from an inquiry. That's, ah, that's the prime bank purpose, related. I suspect. Yeah, yeah I, I think did so. see that. I think so. Well, a couple of uh, renegade, couple of renegade backbenchers who were complaining about the way the government they feel sold out on the mm. on the same sex marriage um, mm. um, to, uh, vote, whatever it was called, mm. the stupid hundred twenty so. million waste of money. Mm. Um, that they they were going to jack up and say, okay, in that case, we're going to put a bank thing through and cross the floor so, uh, yeah, for a bank yeah. inquiry. So. Yeah. That's that's I think that's the main reason. Mm. Now here's good news for Americans, particularly those who follow the um, what are they called? The Philadelphia 76ers, who are a basketball team, right. apparently. Yeah, and it's great. I love the way in Australia kids get round in American sporting tops and things. And mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but four and twenty pies have done a contract to sell sell them at their games because there's this Australian bloke Ben Simmons who's become a new star he's gone over there this year and he's become oh. well, I think he's an indigenous player actually but he's oh. uh, he's become one of the, the hot marketing people in um, in yeah, a, just, they've just started their season but he's, yeah, he's, and he's big he's big time this bloke his first year and he's killing them mm. anyway um, so they're gonna because of him through promoting it through him as being an Australian they're gonna sell four and twenty pies because alongside the hot dogs and they say well hot wow. dogs are American Australia has this but mm. we want to once they get into the dog they'll start wanting them at supermarkets etc etc and the bloke um, the bloke from the company here Patty Foods that makes them um, says Americans love Australian beef so why wouldn't they love the pie now I think the obvious reason they wouldn't <laughs> love the pie to be honest I mean I'm fair enough better but you know, if you're giving odds, it'd be long, long odds, long odds, wouldn't it? That there's the remotest chance of any Australian beef being in a four and twenty pie. <laughs> I'm not entirely up to speed with the contents of four and twenty pies. No, but, but <laughs> generally speaking, I think yeah. you can overlook beef. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's sweet that they're branching out into the American market. It is. It is they lovely, don't eat it? pies like that in America. No, they only no. eat sweet pies, generally. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's, this is the go. We're I think savoury pies is going to break everybody's brains, honestly, over there. They're going to be like, what? Well, we're going yeah. to educate them. And, yep. uh, and, in the Australian uh, I mean, way. You're right. I mean, who does know what is in a four and 20 pie? But I don't. I certainly don't. idea what isn't. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, it, it might be a... It might be a surreptitious attack on the on the health of America. I mean, even though they eat hot dogs and everything else, so they do it to themselves in the first place, but mm-hmm. this could top it off. Mm, I don't know. Maybe they need to give them some cheese and spinach pies or something like that. Maybe that would be a healthier <laughs> option. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Greek, though. I mean, uh, yes. yeah, we can't really claim that, I don't think. Right, uh, okay. Spinacopita or something. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. Okay. Um, now... On a, on a serious note, um, a woman called Christiana Figueres was here. She's United Na- former United Nations climate chief. She, uh, she was executive secretary of the UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change, and she's still working in the area, in a separate area. Uh, but she 
she came out last week and said, providing a $1 billion loan to underwrite Adani's proposed mega coal mine in Queensland would have serious negative impacts for Australia's international reputation and unpick the progress of the Paris Climate Agreement. And she's written to um, to Turnbull and the government um, saying that they you know simply shouldn't do it for that reason. Mm. It must not act in a way that is like this is the government, the NAIF, the body that's going to loan it to them, that northern... Australia Infrastructure Facility, uh, must not act in a way that is likely to cause damage to the Commonwealth Government's reputation or that of a relevant state or territory. Um, she warned the expectations, expected total lifetime carbon emissions from burning coal from the proposed, from the proposed Carmichael uh, mine would be 4.64 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide, according to details of the letter. At its peak, the mine's product, um, product would trigger emissions of 120 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent, roughly equal to what Australia has pledged to cut by 2030 from current pollution levels under its Paris pledges. Based on these numbers, emissions that would result from burning Carmichael coal in one peak production year would completely cancel out the total emissions reduction effort Australia has committed to for the 13 years from now until 2030 under the Paris Agreement. And she goes on to say, her intervention was prompted by a deep concern for planetary well-being. I cannot in all good conscience remain silent on an issue that threatens to unpick the progress represented by the Paris Agreement. And it goes on. Mm. Um, She also... um, Australia copped criticism. This is the and then this, this was the bond gathering last week. Australia copped criticism at the gathering for its promotion of coal, with Hilda Hine, president of the Marshall Islands, calling for a change of government in Canberra and urging nations to stop burning the intensive heavy fossil fuel. Hmm. Um, Dean Bialek, a former Australian diplomat and advisor to small island states threatened by the rising sea levels driven by climate change, said Ms Figueres had been utterly shocked to learn the government was considering a huge subsidy for a darning during a recent visit, etc, etc. So mm. there you are. So, uh, But will they learn That's... from that? Mm. Where, what was that in? Not the Herald Sun. That was in The Age, I think. It was in The Age on um, The Age on Monday, November 20. Was that two days ago? That sounds very... Thoughtful. Yes, yes. Um, And then on top of that, of course, just to um, stress that point, on the same day or the last couple of days, last Friday in the age, there was a headline, weird weather, etc. An unusual combination of conditions is confounding climate experts with the possibility that Australia could post a warmer and drier than average summer, even with a La Nina event being declared in the Pacific. Mm. The Bureau of Meteorology released its summer outlook indicating the odds have shifted back from this and it talks about the fact that even though it's La Nina we're going to get quite strange weather and very hot mm. etc. Mm. Um, so, um, so, so we've got so much human ingenuity there's so much potential for us to do things a different way and it's such a it's really sad when you just see governments and corporations going by the same old book that they've right. always gone by. Got to make a quid so that's <clears> it. Yeah, yeah, faster, faster yeah, the better. Exactly. Yeah. And on the other hand, on the other side of that argument, uh, Alan Finkel, the chief scientist, now he's been, you know, when he got a when he got appointed, we were a bit critical because he's been he's always been very pro uranium, for instance. Mm. Uh, but he's actually come out and he said 
Um, we need certainty in the system, which we haven't had under Prime Minister Turnbull, which I find interesting. He's you know, sort of mm. to actually name and attack the government in that way. Because mm. he, he says he's rubbished government claims that Labor's proposed 50% renewables target by 2030 is unachievable. Um, and California's Energy Commissioner bloke called Andrew McAllister visited Australia and he said it's he, he said over there uh, they've done it pretty easily it's managed to dramatically turn the situation around only two years ago California um, set into law a uh, set into a law a goal of generating half of all its electricity from renewable sources by 2030 now it has announced it will meet this benchmark by 2020 a decade ahead of schedule wow um, the three largest utilities all passed the 25% renewables benchmark in 2016 and believe they are well on the way to hitting the earlier target. McAllister said that energy efficiency has played a significant part of this transition. I think that's important because mm. we never talk about efficiency or cutting back on. We we project that we're going to have this almost um, just ever increasing um, increase in, uh, in use and mm. not uh, think about cutting it back anyway. Mm. And it's been a pillar of California's energy landscape, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So, they, you know, I think that's pretty important. Um, and um, as you say, though, we're not actually learning, are we? Mm. Um, and then again, a bloke, Asiona, now admittedly it's a company that specialises in, um, in, in renewable energy, but the global head of energy at Asiona, the world's biggest green utility, is undeterred by the uncertainty of Australia's future energy and climate policy and is earmarking about $600 million for new solar, wind and storage plants over the next three to four years. And he goes on to say things like... Um, um, things like um, today's renew today renewables is becoming the future of energy, so it's the only solution for the future to fill the gap of the new demand or to fill the gap because of the phase out of fossil plants. Because it's very cheap, very clean, we can install in one or two years, so it's very fast to install. So probably the political situation or even the regulation it is impacting less in the future. And um, another bloke called um, called Wickham. Um, who's involved in Australia? He's the Australia, the Australian manager of this company. He said the groundswell of support for renewables is at a point now where even a lack of policy at federal level probably isn't going to stop us coming. Amazing. Uh, so there's a bit of hope there, isn't there? Yes, indeed. That's that's a that's a very hopeful sentence that yeah. that um, people are, are supporting renewables. I suppose he means. Like consumers are buying things like solar panels for their houses and things like that. Is that what? Yeah. Plus, saying? plus, I think you know people like them are investing more in, in uh, it and, and and making the point now that it, it can be it can be base load if you do you know do it properly and have the proper storage etc. Interesting. Yeah. We'll move on. We'll move on to John very quickly. Yeah. Um, I just thought I'd mention though because the. Um, because the Royal Commission in the Northern Territory Royal Commission into the dreadful treatment of kids in detention yeah. Yeah. Uh, recommended that you increase the age of, uh, of criminality from 10 to 12, and some say it should be even higher, mm. uh, we'll be pleased to know that the, the, so the Victorian government here is actually lowering it for kids held on suspicion of terrorists, terrorism, they want to oh. they want to hold kids as low as fourteen for thirty six hours without charge. Oh. Um, this follows a report by Ken Lay, the former police commissioner, who's a very conservative man. Mm. Um, but he's also, and this is the worrying part, Ken Lay says. Um, 
countering, countering violent extremism was a main focus and identified the need to build frontline capacity to help take early action. That means more coppers, I suspect, and mm. more security. He identified that Islamic-focused extremism was not the only threat in Victoria, with right and left-wing groups also needing early identification. Oh. So he wants them to. We had a, Years ago, alongside ASIO in Victoria, we had a body called the Special Branch, which was political and simply attacked the left wing all the time. Oh, the Special Branch uh, sounds very Orwellian. Yeah, we, it got it got it got wiped out um, ostensibly by the Kane Labor government in the eighties, but right. we believe it just moved moved somewhere else and it continues got, to operate. Right. Um, and he's really talking literally about bringing something like that back. Oh you know, gosh. Which would just you know target left wing activists. Mm. And I think what we've seen in some progress, we've got someone on the line. Okay, we've got. Um, John Passant, is that what it says? I can't read that with my reading glasses Me on either. from the door. Do we put uh, put him through? Yeah, well, I'll just put uh, put a little announcement on. Yeah, and put an we'll announcement on, and we'll get on. John on the line. Yeah. yeah. You're listening to Three CR Radio. Great Voices CDs on Three CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. United Struggle Project presents The Change, revolutionary hip-hop theatre, evolution to revolution. Join us for an interactive performance taking audience on an epic journey through the Collingwood Estate Underground Car Park, transformed into many worlds for you to explore. Friday the 24th of November, 7pm, or the matinee show at 3pm on Saturday, November the 25th. $10 or $5 unwaged, no one turned away. Get your tickets now at Eventbrite or through our Facebook page. Pay all you mob, be a part of the change. This ain't a pill to will, as into apathy. Meet us on the front line and often it's an embassy. Burn. The change is a 3CR supporter. Radio and John, uh, John Passant, I hope still there after all that noise in his ear. Um, John Passant, of course, is a, as we say on this program, he's a former assistant tax commissioner, but these days he's a lecturer in tax, etc. He's been unable to get on all year because of his academic uh, commitments, but um, he's on today. And John, since we um, announced at the start of the show you were coming on, we've had a, we've just been handed a whole list of questions people have asked us to ask you, so you do generate, uh, some of which I've got no idea what they mean, but that's another question. <laughs> and probably I don't either. <laughs> well... We won't tell you that one yet. We'll see how you go. Um, just before we go on to what I really wanted to start with, I, I noticed Dimitri Papadimitru, who was the um, the latest um, uh, the latest economist, the latest uh, finance minister in in Greece in the so called left wing government. He was here last week seeking seeking investment in Greece, and he's saying how things are improving dramatically, etc. 
Uh, but part of that, and I want just comment on this because it seemed to me to epitomise so much of what happens. He says the economic shock has created an improvising business culture. A lot of the development funding Greece has, uh, um, has had from the EU has been directed into reinforcing this. Savage internal deflation means wages are low, bad for the individuals, but good for pulling investment, he says. Uh, can you comment on that? It seems to me to sum a lot of things up. It does indeed, doesn't it? That What we need to do is make uh, workers less well off, we need to impoverish them more so that business can thrive. And in fact, mm. if you look at it in Australia, what's the, what's the Reserve Bank saying? The Reserve Bank's saying wages, wages have been dropping and that's why demand is dropping. Um, we've got a problem. So there's a contradiction for capital in this sense that, yes, the individual, might, the individual company might make more profit with lower wages, but that means that demand for products is also less. So some companies are going to miss out on profits as well. So um, I just think that this nonsense about improvisation and uh, low inflation and low wages and so forth is all nonsense. It's merely about shifting wealth to capital so they can address falling profit rates. But, you know, that's the bullshit we'll get. Oh, sorry. That's the rubbish we'll get from... From apologists for capitalism day in and day out, and it doesn't matter whether they parade under the guise of being left-wing or, or uh, right-wing. It's not, really. Yeah, and the um, the World Bank, of course, a couple of months ago brought out a report that showed it had moved into the commie camp, or maybe <laughs> maybe Christine Lagarde had been hijacked and, and being <laughs> held hostage by commos or something, because it came out with a report that said two things. One, the trickle-down effect doesn't, believe it or not, trickle down the drops of yellow liquid, but more importantly, it said that the, the mantra that tax cuts for the rich and for big corporations will, will generate throughout the economy, create jobs, lift wages, simply there's no proof of that at all. And yet this week, the Business Council of Australia came out with a report after commissioning its own members that said, yes, indeed, if we got tax cuts, we would invest. And our Prime Minister, arising out of that, said the message from business is clear and compelling. The government's plans will fuel employment, investment and economic growth. That's the plan to cut taxes for the rich. Uh, uh, there's contradiction yeah. there somewhere. Oh, absolutely. Um, what we've got is a government saying it's going to give $65 billion worth of cuts to companies. And at the same time, it's uh, attacking poor people through cuts to welfare and workers through cuts to, real cuts to education and health and so forth. And this idea that, well, if we give cuts to companies, what they'll do is invest in more in their own companies and in, in new opportunities, and that will flow into more jobs. Is As you say, the IMF and the World Bank have both released studies that show that this is not true, that trickle-down doesn't work, and indeed... The trickle-down economy that was talked about in terms of Ronald Reagan, for example, didn't work. It's study after study shows this. You cut taxes on companies, and the driver for capital accumulation, part of it is to invest in employment-replacing mm. uh, devices so that you end up funding um, or giving extra funds to people whose driver is to replace labour with machines. And so um, the 
problem then becomes <laughs> that, <laughs> that it goes into making profit for them rather than for making jobs for us. And that's really what it's about. And so the BCA, the Business Council of Australia, obviously has come down and said, oh, yes, we're all about jobs. But really what they're about is profit. And the way they make profit, there's no correlation between them making more profit and uh, investing in more jobs. And study after study shows that the IMF is just the latest one to do that. So anything else you hear is propaganda. Hmm. John, this is Meg. Um, hi, hi. Meg. hi. Uh, I've heard about you from Kevin and that you've been working in this area for a long time. I'm wondering yep. if you're seeing people um, be, doing their own businesses, doing more self-employment in a response to the fact that a lot of bigger organisations are not, you know, is there a move towards that kind of thing? Thing, if that makes sense, a lot of businesses are not. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, there is, well, there's a move to. There's a whole range of different factors going on. There's a move to um, creating a, 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 a facade that people are now self-employed mm-hmm. rather than actually being employed. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're on a contract with somebody and they're they're saying to you, "Well, you're only employed on this contract for three months, so mm-hmm. you don't get the benefits of what workers get, such as." Mm. Long service leave, holiday pay, etc. Sick et leave, and, yeah, yeah, sick leave, and so forth. Mm. And there's a growing trend in Australia towards that. It's been going on for um, a decade or so now mm. that people are no longer employed as workers; they're employed as some sort of notional self-employed person. Yeah. Um, and the the tax office does try to crack down on that, mm. but the problem with that is that um, it's not just for tax purposes; it's for um, for superannuation purposes, it's mm-hmm. for um, long service leave purposes, it's for sick leave purposes, it's for annual leave purposes. So you start thinking about fair work commissions and, and unions trying to enforce these rules. And of course, uh, that's really difficult because we've got unions who are hamstrung by legislation and we've got fair work commission, which really is about protecting employers rather than employees in the main. Mm. Um, you can look at it in terms of, well, even if people are being employed uh, under an award, that these people uh, might well be suffering wage theft through mm. some of the recent examples that we're discovering from some well-known restaurateurs, for example, mm. and uh, well-known delivery pizza pizza places mm. and so on. And um, there's a wonderful cartoon in today's Canberra Times because I live in Canberra, I'm conversant with the Canberra Times, which, by David Pope, which has a couple of backpackers knocking on the police door in an, out, in, in an outback situation saying, hello, hello, wage theft, wage mm. theft, are you doing anything about it? Mm. And of course, that's the problem, the imbalance of power and uh, needs to be addressed through giving more power to unions to be able to um, ensure that people are being paid the appropriate wage of 17 or $18 and for the minimum wage instead of $12 an hour, which is what they're getting away with in some industries. Even though this week the report came out that said wage abuse in these areas is endemic, uh, whenever an employer gets sprung, the employer says it was absolutely inadvertent. Um, I'm, have you had an example of an inadvertent overpayment at all, anyone? No, I haven't. <laughs> and I wonder why that is. Oh, look, we were only paying them $12 an hour when it should have been $17. Just a... Just a typographical error, you know. I mean, seven. The, the two in twelve looks a lot like the seven in seventeen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> right. yeah. How, how to how to try and convince the public that you are actually 
did make an innocent mistake, Kira, the RPO. I mean, what's the driver for these businesses? The driver is profit. What's one way of doing it? Exploiting, especially international students, mm. uh, on low wages. Um, the most, one of the most vulnerable sections in our society, people who, who need to work to survive in Australia um, and who uh, might are afraid of losing their job if, uh, if they don't uh, keep working at $12 an hour instead of $17. Yeah. And it's typical. It's across, it's across um, a wide range of industries. And if we didn't have strong unions in, in the building industry, that's precisely what would be happening in the building industry mm-hmm. as well. And in fact, it may well be happening in those areas where unions can't get in. So some of the 457 visa workers might be being, uh, are being screwed because uh, they're kept away from unions and uh, um, are, are operating and, and conversing in languages that the unions, although they're trying to get people to help them, um, haven't got the capacity to do so. So I think really one of the questions here is the answer is, Stronger union yeah, because was, we've got all was, these laws. You presage my question. In fact, that like, uh, <laughs> surely, surely much of this is happening because the union people are starting unions. And yes, that's right. And there's a complex whole range of factors about non-unionisation uh, that go back, I think, to the 1980s and the Accord and the um, you know the idea mm. that union that workers and capital are all in this together rather than should should be in conflict. And I think the end consequence of that is people leaving unions over a period of time um, because unions aren't seen as fulfilling the capacity to provide adequate wages. And, of course, changes in the the economic structure in a society moving away from manufacturing into service industries, which traditionally have been less um, unionised. And then that question of moving from worker to so-called self-employed person. All these trends are undermining unions. But I think uh, if you look historically at unions in Australia, the, the times when they've had real influence and real large memberships have been when they've actually been fighting for wages through strikes and other industrial action. And I think that's something that unions in Australia need to revisit. The, the question of how you win wage increases for workers has to be not something that's constrained by the Fair Work Act and a couple of days on strike, but you know the capacity to pull out workers indefinitely until the bosses uh, um, agree to your demands. And I think that that's part of a wider political issue as well, the, the sense of not being able to fight for what you believe in and what you want is endemic across social movements as well, that the protests have become isolated from social social conflict and haven't pushed forward through social conflict to win what they demand. Um, for example, the bringing of the refugees to Australia, mm. the ending of the occupation of the Northern Territory or the intervention, as it's now called, mm. um, and so on. I think there's a whole sense of uh, a need for this next generation of left-wing people to to understand the need to really confront the powers that be in ways that stop business as usual, whether that be through strikes or occupations of um, centres of towns and so forth. But I'll leave that there. Yeah, well, uh, just on that, though, I've argued that I think even the more radical unions have made a mistake in going along with by going to court and even paying fines. I think there has to come a time when you simply stand up to laws which are designed in the first place to render unions almost, um, you know, almost useless. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think um, this this idea of paying fines is one that buys unions time. So the strong unions are fined over and over again and they have fine funds to, to cover that. But of course, if you look back in history in 1969, it was precisely in 1969 with Clary O'Shea mm. and uh, him being jailed for refusing to pay fines or refusing to provide the the information about where the funds were that the court could then sequester the funds to pay the fines. That, that saw was, him jailed by John Kerr. That's right. That yeah. was the tramways union at the time yep. and, uh, here in Victoria, and um, people might remember the incident, but he was jailed, and in fact it led to a general strike which got him out very quickly. Mm. Someone, yes. someone paid general the some, strike some anonymous person paid the fine very quickly. Presumably some multi-millionaire was, businessman yeah, yeah. paid mm. the fine, and the general strikes after five days across Australia, the rolling general strikes, stopped. Now, I'm not saying we're now in the same situation as 1969 in the sense that unions are talking about this, but those strikes in 1969 were led by 17 militant unions. Now, mm. I think in Australia today, we don't have 17 million militant unions, but I think it's something that militant unions need to be putting on the agenda of how do we smash the restrictive um, penal provisions or the restrictive uh, workplace laws that we've got now, and I think that has to be part of the agenda that they're discussing. Otherwise, we'll just end up with um, the current situation continuing and the unions paying fines and then a bit of amelioration when Labor gets elected. But Labor's, Labor, in fact, was the one that introduced enterprise bargaining and restrictions on the right to strike and so limiting it to that period around the right to uh, the, 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 the enterprise bargaining period. And I think there should be no limitation on the right to strike. Uh, workers have the right to withhold their labour at any time they want, mm. rather than being deemed illegal when you go on strike, uh, which is a classic uh, tactic of the boss's laws. And I think, you know, the ALP should be condemned for introducing that. And we're seeing it approach. up north at the moment in the Glencore mine situation, where I think they're up to 100 and so many days, 40 or something days, locked out. But the lockout by the boss is totally legal. But if they were out on strike, they'd be totally illegal. Yes, that's right. And it's just another example of laws that are created that benefit um, the ruling elite or the bosses rather than Labor. And I think, you know, we've had 30-something, 40-something years of this since 1984, 1985 of uh, Labor and its industrial relations laws. And I think the time's come for unions and workers themselves, the workers in the unions, to say enough is enough. We have to fight back now. And if that's illegal, uh, it doesn't matter. We just have to bring down the whole penal, penal power system. But and, and in doing that, it, I, I think the other thing about industrial action is that it creates a climate for left-wing ideas. So at the moment, we've got a climate for right-wing debate about, for example, my favourite issues, tax. And so the, the debate about tax is a nonsensical debate about let's give $65 billion to companies uh, on, on the mistaken belief that suddenly there'll be more jobs, mm. when in fact what we should be talking about is why aren't companies, the 678 that paid no income tax on revenue of $452 billion. Why aren't we taxing them? What are we talking about? Why are we letting the top 10% who own half of Australian, well, the wealth in Australia, and that is about $5 trillion worth of wealth, why are we talking about a wealth tax on them? Why are we standing up and saying, get rid of the GST, it's a tax on poor people more than on rich people, and impose more income tax on those who earn more than, say, $100,000? 
that these are the sorts of debates that can come up in the political arena once you have a driver from major sections of society around wages, for example, and better wages. Is there a relationship between the ideology of the trickle-down economics and this increasing gap between the rich and the poor? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, The trickle-down is based on the idea of shifting wealth and income, Mm. uh, what I would call surplus value. More surplus value, the value that is created by workers over Mm. and above the wages they're paid, Mm. that more and more to capital and less and less to labour. So if you look at um, the trend of national of the factor income in Australia, what's going to labour and what's going to capital, the percentage going to labour has dropped 10% over the last decade Mm. and the percentage going to capital has increased by 10%. And you see that reflected in the inequality figures so that there's a growing inequality in Australia and that started in the mid-1980s and has not ever been redressed at all under either Liberal or Labor government. And it's it's a deliberate policy or set of policies by both governments to um, ensure that capital accumulation by capital continues uh, um, at the, at the in, in essence, at the expense of the rest of us. Mm. Um, some of the sections of society have benefited, benefited, so the top 10% of society have got richer, but the rest of society has got relatively poorer. And not only that, if you look at the ACOS figures, there are now about 3 million people in Australia living below the poverty line, mm. including 720,000 children or so. Mm. I mean, we have the wealth in Australia right now to be able to turn around and say, we'll be able to provide an adequate standard of living for every poor person in Australia, an adequate home, mm. adequate housing, adequate clothing, adequate food, adequate education, adequate health care. But we don't do it because what we say as a society is, yes, but we have to feed more money into the Gina Reinhardt's of the world because if we don't do that, somehow society is going to collapse. Well, it's nonsense. Mm. It's absolute nonsense. You know, 1% net wealth tax on the Gina Reinhardt's of the world give you enough money to pay for health and education and uh, housing for poor people. It's not rocket science. Gina came out last week and said she's concerned about the country and uh, and things need to be done, like get rid of government, etc. Um, but she's very, she is deeply concerned, so she does care about us, uh, John. Um, as she takes away the, as, as she's part of that class that takes away the land of Aboriginal people. That's right. Well, yeah. she did say that um, she she she's truly Australian. She won't leave our shores because of the tax problem. But she didn't point out that if she left the shores, then, you know, how would she get the stuff out of the ground? <laughs> That's right. That, that, um, but if she sets up a company offshore to continue her mining, then it's a bit harder for her to, to convince workers that she has Australian interests at heart, whereas if she has it here, she can say, oh, I've got interests, all of the interests of Australian workers at heart. It's interesting that, you know, when people talk about uh, mining companies and so forth, Australian mining and how it's such a wonderful provider to the Australian economy. When you ask people how many jobs are provided by mining companies, the answers uh, the answers they give are way, way much larger than actually the percentage of uh, workers in the mining industry. It's about it's less than two percent of workers in Australia are are employed in the mining industry, and of course a lot of the mining industry you give cuts to mining big mining companies, 
which is what this government is proposing over the next uh, 10 years or so. You give cuts to big mining companies and what they do is reinvest it in machinery that replaces workers. So it's more cost efficient to use you know, automatic, uh, automatic, uh, what are they, um, uh, huge um, cars, not cars, machines. Well, they've got driverless trains and driverless trucks. Driverless trains, the, that's what I'm thinking the, um, of, yes. Driverless trucks and trains on the mining yep. sites in Western Australia in particular at the moment, yeah. Yep. And that's the sort of pattern that mining industries will go into. Did you know also that Gina Reinhardt gave a an award last night to the person who's done the most to help the farming industry? And no. you'll never guess who it was given to. <laughs> no, but you're going to tell us. I, I missed <laughs> this one. <laughs> yeah. Barnaby Joyce. Oh, good on him. <laughs> no, that's Barnaby Joyce, an extra $40,000 into his pocket for... For the award, uh, just wonderful. Yeah, it was you know, world. I think it was Australian, Australian Farming Day or something. I noticed because in the article where she was saying she so cares about us, there's Australia. They've got Farming Day and then Mining Day. I think today is Australian Mining Day. I think it is. So there might be. Oh, yesterday might today. have been Australian Farming yeah, Day. Yeah, Farming and Day so yesterday <laughs> and Mining Today. I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we'll find out today who's done the most. Who's the miner? Australian mining industry, That's and right. I wonder if a former. Labor Party minister who now heads up the Minerals Council or works for the Minerals Council mm. or the mining companies um, might win that. Yeah. Gee, no idea who you're talking about. Well, I'm available to give advice to mining companies if they like to. Look, I'd be a yeah. nice little sinecure of 100000 a year. That'd do me. Tax the mining companies. Put in a rin- minerals resource rent tax that really works instead of one that was designed to give the impression of working but didn't. Yes. Well, okay. it is a diversion. I mean, but we talked about the Victorian government years ago got Eddington, who's, you know, the big capitalist, to advise them on transport for Melbourne, who recommended the East-West Link and all these freeways. <laughs> As we said at the time, if they'd got some of the people we talked to uh, in academia who are public transport experts, they would have got a totally different report. Yes. And yet exactly. all transport planning is now based on his report. And his report is all about, let's make it, better for the car to be able to drive all around instead of factoring in what we really need is <laughs> concentration on public transport and thinking about how we make the inner city and the suburban cities more livable, more more attractive for uh, people to have better lives. Um, and of course, one of the, which reminds me of a wider issue, one of the issues that's now cropping up around how do we have better lives under capitalism is, well, why are we working more than 40 hours a week, um, why are we working all these unpaid hours? The amount of unpaid mm. hours that go to that go to the bosses mm. is just unbelievable, over and above, you know, the standard working week, which supposedly we're paid for. Mm. But um, the average working week in Australia is not 38 hours a week, which is the standard working week. It's something like 41 or 42 or 43. So there's an extra, and, and a lot of that, I think it was $100 billion worth of, unpaid work um, and there are questions now that should be raised we've been working for the last 30 years and in increasing our productivity and all of those productivity gains almost all of them have not come back to us in wages but have gone through to capital in increased profit maybe the time has come for us to turn around and say well what we need is not a not a 38 hour week but a 30 hour week mm-hmm. with no loss of pay mm-hmm. um, what we need is a redressing of the gender pay imbalance, the $20,000 extra that goes to men because they're men and work in 
male-dominated industries. What we need, of course, is a redressing of the fact that despite the, av- the average wage being 40000 most people are below that on 65000 and women are about forty-eight or 49000 So the whole range of issues that could be addressed, and that would be the role of militant unions to start thinking about that and addressing those issues and putting it on the agenda and then striking for addressing it within the workplace. But we don't have that in our agenda just yet. We've got Barnaby Joyce going to be re-elected next weekend and a government in chaos. of the year. A government in chaos whose only response to the chaos um, is oh, some bubble thought from the Prime Minister of giving tax cuts to workers. No indication of what the tax cuts will be or how big they will be, but just a little bubble on his agenda, which is him trying to say, help, I'm drowning, can you throw me something mm. to save me? But one yeah. suggestion, though, for uh, balancing that out and, and not, not losing too much income through it was, in fact, to increase the, G- the usual one, increase the GST again and broaden it out, etc. So, again, yeah. it's asking people to give back their weight, their tax increase, their tax decrease somewhere as another tax somewhere else. Yes. When the GST was introduced, you know, it was introduced by Howard in 2000, Howard and Costello, and, of course, um, they trumpeted, oh, look, we're giving you tax cuts, income tax cuts, that will mean you're better off. So it doesn't matter that we're introducing a GST, you're actually better off. Well, there are two answers to that. One is that the GST took more money from poor people than than from rich people as a percentage of their income. So even though you were getting the same revenue overall as a government, you were getting more revenue from poor people. And secondly, the tax cuts themselves that went to low-income and middle-income people was eaten up by bracket creep within the space of four or five years. So within four or five years, you were back to paying the same amount of income tax as the percentage of your 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 income, but you had the GST on top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the government won both ways, and poor workers were feeling hit by tax. And, of course, now on top of that, we've got um, low wage increases, so wage increases that, that look as if they're not keeping up with inflation or for low-income owners. Uh, especially aren't keeping up with inflation. So what's going on here? Poor wage increases for middle and low-income workers, uh, uh, bracket creep that's eating into their wages, and the government has a bubble thought which says, oh, we'll give you a little bit back in the t- in terms of a tax cut, which will only be a return of the bracket creep that has occurred over the last uh, four or five years anyway. Yes. As, opposed, yeah. as opposed to the creeps who think up the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I remember once talking about tax creep and somebody in the audience said, is that you, John? <laughs> Speaking of, yeah. um, a bloke called Raynard Tang did an opinion piece last week. He's a, he's a tax lawyer in Sydney somewhere. And he quotes a bloke called Graham Hill. You know Graham Hill? Um, oh, I did know him, yeah. Yeah, back in 85, Graham Hill, who would go on to become one of Australia's most respected tax judges, wrote yeah, about the, the ethics court. of tax practice. He said, once a tax advisor accepts a retainer, he, they're all he's obviously, he will do so to the best of his skill and ability, noting that whatever views the advisor may have as to the morality of the transaction are at this stage irrelevant. He goes on to observe the advisor may regard the transaction with distaste and say so, but is bound to give his advice. Exactly, and in a competitive world of tax advice, if you're giving advice to a company which means 
or a, a very rich person, which means they pay more tax than the advisor in another company, then they're not going to be your. Uh, they're not going to be work. You're not going to be working for them for a very long enough shift. Mm. So questions of morality in this sense are irrelevant. So um, you know, as uh, our prime minister um, said when he had when he was exposed through the Panama Papers of having investments through. Cayman Islands. Well, I did nothing illegal, and that's part of the problem. Uh, of course, you do nothing illegal, but with the the fact that you're not making contributions to Australian society by shifting profits offshore, for example, mm. is moral or ethical mm. is another question. And the answer they always give is, "Well, I constructed this within the context of Australian mm. and international law." Right. We meet our laws. legal tax obligations. They always say. That's right. We are paying our fair share of tax. Now, if you look at the last, as I mentioned briefly before, if you look at the last transparency report from the ACT, ATO, rather, the of the 1,900 or so big businesses in Australia, 37% or about 678, 678, I think, from memory, of those big businesses paid no income tax, mm-hmm. absolutely no income tax in that year, 37%. Now, this is a, more or less the same figure every year. Um, what are they doing? Well, some of them are running at loss. Like I think in that year, Qantas was running at loss because of a whole range of um, market factors. But they're not all Qantas. A lot of them are up to, well, my guess is about 20% of them, are up to transfer pricing, shifting profit offshore, um, are up to internal lending arrangements, which uh, means that uh, borrowing at high rates from related companies, which means that there's no profit in Australia because you're paying high interest on loans to offshore entities. And you set up in Singapore and get your Singapore company to sell Australian iron ore into China. I mean, seriously, why couldn't that be done in Australia? Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things are feeding into part of the explanation why one more than one third of com- big business in Australia pays no income tax. They're shifting profits out of Australia to avoid tax in Australia. And part of the reason for that is, as the chairman of Google explained a few years ago, look, I'm going to do everything in my power to reduce tax. I'm not stupid. I understand what's going on here. It's got a simple explanation. It's called capitalism. And that's right. You know, they review, they view tax as a cost, so they'll do anything in their power to cut tax. Um, one of the other things that, that came out of, you know, this discussion about let's cut tax on workers, and you mentioned well, let's fund it through the GST mm. increases. The GST won't be increased because the government knows it'll get a, an electoral whopping from that. So what they're talking about is, um, firstly, the increase in the Medicare levy to pay for the NDIS, which shouldn't be linked to um, the Medicare levy, but uh, is. It could be paid for out of general revenue. But secondly, uh, one of the other things that'll that'll happen here is there's now discussion about addressing the low income, sorry, the, the tax-free threshold from naught to $18,200 and getting rid of that and replacing it by a new system which will give credits for low-income earners and take it away, the, the low-income tax threshold, from high-income earners, which in theory sounds good, but, you know, in design would mean basically I think the poor people are going to end up paying more, more tax and rich people are going to end up paying less. So there's a concern there. I just don't. Well, you know, where's the where's the party that says what we should be doing is taxing big business and capital? What we should be doing is taxing uh, rich people. 
You know, the ACOS report of, of a while ago, which showed that 112, 120 of the tax of the top income earners were not paying any any tax because what they were doing was getting tax advice, which wiped out all of their all of their income. That's just unbelievable, just disgusting. Whereas you and I go off to work, or mm. you and I get our social welfare payments, and what do we find? We get robo mm. robo Centrelink debts. Mm. Um, we get threats to be taken off to the highest courts in the land, and um, garnished garnished wages and payments. You know, it's mm. just this. The priority is not poor people and and uh, workers in this country. The priority is the Gina Reinhardt's of the world. We've got to turn that around. Yeah, and it does seem like the um, the bigger an organisation is, the more resources they have to investigate ways of reducing their tax or eliminating their their tax. Because I, well, can... absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Meg. If yeah. you've got if you've got a um, a turnover of fifteen mm. billion dollars a year, mm. you're going to be able to employ the best minds in the tax field to yeah. arrange your affairs in such a way mm. as not to do it. But mm. there's another aspect of this as well. If you've got a turnover of $15 billion a year, you've got enough influence on a government, mm. a Liberal National Party government, to structure laws in such a way mm. that you mm. pay low-income tax already. Mm. You know, the effective tax rate of some of these companies, the average effective tax rate of companies is around 20% or 22%, I think, mm. when in fact your your nominal tax rate should be 30%. So mm. they're already reducing their tax. but. As you said, John, when you're on time flies, because it has flown. Um, we, oh, didn't no. get, we didn't even get round to the other questions. We didn't get Oh, look, round... we should do that next week as my, my permanent spot on your <laughs> You should come into the studio do... so we can keep chatting afterwards yeah, as well, because I've got camera. about 10 more questions too. We didn't oh. even get round to, um, to the wonderful tax cuts by, by um, Donald Trump. Who's doing oh, that. no, yes. They well, mm. I guess the answer to that is that it's all trickle-down nonsense. Yeah. It's all going to the rich. And it won't work, but the rich will be very happy. All right, John, look, we will talk to you now again next year. And um, All right, uh, thanks. Got thanks. Three more I appreciate the opportunity year. for yeah. blabbering on for <laughs> an hour, for 40 minutes. Or no, so. It's been very thanks, good. Thanks, 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 Kevin. Thanks, thanks John. John. Okay. Bye-bye. John Passant there, as we say, is an ex-commissioner, and uh, I think you can, everyone can see why he's ex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, he lectures in tax law, etc. these days. So, yeah. Great. Um, Good to talk to him. Yeah, it is. It is. Joe will be in in a second. He's at the door now. We better go. So next week is um, next week is the fifth Wednesday, and no idea we've got something on. Right. See you all then.